Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One, Genesis 21. We're, we're nearing the halfway mark through the study of the book of Genesis. And uh, you're going to begin to see a transition slightly in this passage that will continue to increase as we are going to begin moving away from the life of Abraham and start moving toward the life of Isaac. And so those are going to be your two main characters this morning uh, as we look at Genesis 21 and then chapter uh, 22, I'm sorry, and chapter 23, where we will be uh, uh, this morning. And so if you have that copy of God's Word, I want us to read that. We're going to read the entire section, uh, at least of the first chapter that we're going to be studying, and then we're going to kind of break that down, and I'll come back and start with the second portion. But we'll at least read Genesis chapter 22 and then dive into that section, and then we'll come back and hit 23 as well as we're going to look at the testing of Abraham, the testing of Abraham. So the Word of God says in Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went and so they went both of them together and Isaac said to his father Abraham my father and he said here I am my son he said behold the fire and the wood but where is the lamb for a burnt offering Abraham said God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son so they went both of them together when they came to the place of which God had told him Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned his, to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. 
Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethel. Bethel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name is Remah, bore Tibah, Gaham, Tehash, and Maacah. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this section of Scripture. We're thankful for what we can glean from one of our patriarchs, from one of the faithful ones who, even in the New Testament, the Bible draws attention to this particular section of Scripture to encourage us, to encourage them at that particular time, as it was written in the book of Hebrews, to be men and women of faith, to demonstrate that we too can be that, um, those type of individuals by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that, Lord, that we can um, throw off the sins that so easily beset us, that ensnare us and entangle us and hold us back, and that we can run this race with endurance. Lord, as we look to you first and foremost, the author and perfecter of our faith, but then look to those who are not uh, fully God and fully man, that we can look to others who have a, uh, a nature the same as ours, who uh, struggle and wrestle with sin and see that by by grace through faith that we can walk in obedience and we can pass the test that you allow us to walk and, and endure the times of testing. And so, Father, we pray that we would glean those truths as we study this chapter and the next, and that, Lord, we would see uh, that you are a God who will not uh, allow us to be tempted beyond more than we can handle, that, Lord, that you're not a God who tempts, but you're a God who tests, and that even in that, you will give us the means to um, uh, obey you in the midst of testing and can overcome when tempted by Satan and and by our own flesh that can overcome the, 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 the temptations even that we might encounter. And so, Father, we're thankful for the time we can spend this morning studying your word, to learn of your character, your nature, and to be able to see that, Lord, that we can be men and women who can live the victorious life here and now. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we, you see there in your notes, and I hope you have a copy of the uh, bulletin in your hand with the notes that's found therein. We'll have two major blanks, if you will, two major points and blanks that we'll fill in this morning. Both, uh, uh, I believe, leading, lending itself to tests that Abraham will pass. The second doesn't seem as obvious. It seems more of a transitional uh, transition away from the life of, of Abraham and then beginning to uh, establish the next main character uh, as it relates to uh, a main character in the sense of um, main human character, knowing that ultimately the main character of the Bible is God himself, but uh, moving away from Abraham being the main thrust and main character to then Isaac, and then, of course, then Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob name changed to Israel, and then Israel to Joseph, and that's where we'll end our study of Genesis as Joseph is going to be the um, um, the hero, if you will, the main um, character as the main human character as we will wrap up the book of Genesis. And so you're going to continue to see the main characters transition throughout. But as we're walking through this, you're seeing now even this transition, two major tests uh, for Abraham. And so as you see in your notes here, God's going to test Abraham through two major components. And the first, as we saw in chapter 22, verses 1 through 24, is God's going to test Abraham through the sacrifice of his son the sacrifice of his son. This is the main thrust, the main text. And I know many who aren't believers who like to be critical of the scriptures, like to criticize the Bible, would talk about other religions at this time and, and uh, child sacrifices and then um, pit that against uh, um, uh, Israel and pit, pit that against Abraham and to say that they were just carrying out other pagan type of rituals. 
This is not at all the case. He does not sacrifice his son. He's willing to sacrifice his son, but only in direct obedience to God's word. And, of course, God does not uh, make him fulfill that. He's ultimately just going to, um, is simply testing him to see if he's willing uh, to obey the Lord at all costs. And that's exactly what the main thrust is for us this morning, is God's test of Abraham. Is he willing to sacrifice his son? And as you'll see at least three times in this chapter, his only son. Now, you might think, does the author of, Hebrew, of, uh, of uh, Genesis not know that he has another son? And the reality in this is, is that it's, it's simply stating that, not, that he, there's not another son, but his only son by the means by which God had instructed the son of faith uh, the son through his wife, not through the concubine, Hagar, but the son of promise. Your only son and your only son of promise, the only son that would receive the blessing of God, would continue, that would continue through uh, the lineage and that would be the one who would carry out the promises that God had promised to Abraham. And so ultimately this is the test, and this is what he had been waiting on. This is why he had tried to take it in his own hands and tried to uh, have a son by human means, which is why Ishmael was born through uh, conception uh, with Hagar. And so this is the, not the son of promise. And so ultimately God's going to test the very son of promise, the son that was given in Abraham's old age. Remember, he was 100. His wife was 90. Uh, and so uh, Sarah was 90 at the time. And so she was past, she was postmenopausal, past the time of bearing children. And so both of them in their old age, as the scriptures tells us, uh, at, at 100 and at 90 are going to have children. And they're going to Live a little longer than that. Ultimately, the next chapter, you're going to see that Sarah's going to live to 127. So she'll live 37 years after the birth of Isaac. Uh, and then you're going to see Abraham, a couple chapters later, is going to die at 175. And so uh, old age was considered 90 and, and 100, even at that point. And so they're going to, he's going to live another 75 years, another three-quarters of that time, at least for Abraham. And he's going to marry again and have many more children after that. And so ultimately, it was... Uh, Sarah, who was the one who was past childbearing age at that time, and so ultimately uh, th- that was portion of it, his old age, her old age, but ultimately you're going to see uh, that he's going to have other wives and, and uh, children, as we're going to see after Sarah's death. But nonetheless, um, this was going to be the child of promise. And in this, God's going to test him in the very area of the promise. Many times we've already seen chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 21, uh, or... Uh, Prior to that, you're going to see uh, promise after promise after promise, or at least a reiteration, or a reminder of the promise that God had given all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. And that being, you're going to have a land uh, that God had promised them, the land he's currently residing in. Uh, you're going to have blessings that's going to come. They're going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you or dishonor you. And you're going to have a lineage. You're going to have a son. And through that son, the nations will come. Uh, and the, the nations will be blessed, and there will be kings that will come through your lineage. And then even here it says that you're, ultimately, that you will have victory over your enemies, as it's stated in this passage. Now, all of this would be for naught if the very uh, lineage that's been promised to him is now wiped out, right? And the promise had been given him, the promise he'd been waiting more than 25 years on has finally arrived, and God's now telling him the very blessing, the very promise that I had given you, I want you to be able to sacrifice that to me. And so in this, God's going to test him with the sacrifice or the surrender and of, of his son to the Lord in submission. And this is, is we look at it now, uh, post, and we can see all allusions to the Messiah. 
we look at this and we begin to see God's provision and how God's provide, and eventually God was going to provide a Messiah, and that Messiah was going to be the one that God will provide for himself as he provided this lamb uh, to protect the son, uh, the chosen son, that ultimately God would give his son. And so we see tons of allusions to um, uh, the future Messiah that was going to become, looking at a new covenant, looking backward to the old covenant. We have to put ourselves, though, in this particular situation, that God had granted a promise and in this, basically, God is reneging, if you will. God is taking back that promise or is at least going to uh, destroy, in, at least in human mind and human thinking, the very uh, means by which God's going to provide the promise. And so when we think about that, this is, this is massive to be able to think through this type of test. And so when we put that then into our own uh, present day, we have to begin to think that God will test us in areas of, of things that are of utmost importance to us. Right, And so in my own mind, I begin to think about my wife and my children, my, my health to be able to provide for them, my, the, the ability to uh, provide housing and food and shelter and clothing and drink and the things that the Bible would commend and command me to do. And I begin to think, man, can I, could I do that? Can I do that? And areas where God can test me, will I submit and surrender to the Lord in these areas? And this is exactly the case where God had made a promise to Abraham and he provided that promise, and now is essentially going to take back that promise that he'd given him, and will Abraham trust the Lord by faith? And so in this, you begin to see he does, right? So after these things, what are these things? All that had taken place up to this point, uh, the, the previous section of Scripture that had been, uh, Isaac had been born in chapter 21, and then uh, the relationship between Hagar and Ishmael and the promises that are made there. Uh, but all that had led up to this, all the 25 years of wandering and waiting, uh, wondering and waiting whether or not God was going to provide what he had promised. It has happened, and now at some age difference, uh, age uh, that's taken place that's different from that, uh, Isaac is at least able to walk, he's able to talk, he's able to, to carry the burden of the burnt offering on his shoulders, and so he's clearly not a toddler, uh, and so he's able to carry the wood and to journey with his father. And so he's, he's you know not a, t- a tiny tyke, if you will. He's, he's old enough to ask questions and to discern uh, that there is something missing here, and that missing piece would be the burnt offering, that at some age, and many say it could be up to even 20, uh, that he's going to yield himself, and you're going to see faith being responded there and trust in his own father when he's bound and then laid upon the altar, that even if I was bound, I'm probably going to be trying to wiggle off the altar at that particular point, thinking my father has lost his mind. Uh, but you're seeing a faith even in the son for his father, trusting the father to be able to take his own life, even in the context of this passage. But in this, you see that God's going to test Abraham. It's clearly stated there, this is what's about to happen. And he simply answers, responds to the Lord when God speaks to him. Yes, and then God instructs him, take your son, your only son Isaac, the son of laughter, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now that seems odd. That seems strange. But ultimately, when we begin to think about the word of God, even if it doesn't make sense at the particular time, uh, we must trust the Word of God, right? Even when it seems like it doesn't, it's not going to go well for us, we must trust the Word of God. And this is what you'll continually see as the pattern uh, when you think, well, man, if I've made a mistake, if I'm honest about my mistake, I could lose my job. Or if I'm, um, if I'm, I'm going to share the gospel with other people, that could cost me uh, relationships, or that could cost me this, or it could cost me that. And are we willing to surrender uh, to and submit to the will and the Word of God and sacrifice whatever it is that we're afraid we might lose. And this is what the whole point of this is. And so 
uh, what you see is it's, a, it's the child of promise, his son, his only son to, that, uh, to the promise God had given him, a son upon which he had loved. It wasn't like he was indifferent toward his son. He absolutely loved his son. But he told him to go to this land, uh, the land of Moriah, uh, where many speak of Mount Moriah there, upon which the, the, many say the temple was built later on through Solomon. That temple was going to be built. It's going to be built on Mount Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. So we don't know if it is exactly. It's a mountain of Moriah. We don't know which one of the mountains it is. But it says, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, the interesting thing is verse 3. Right? So that can be pretty odd. We understand that God is testing him. is asking him to test him in the very area upon which God had promised him. That uh, he was going to be blessed. And that their lineage was going to be given to him. Uh, we know that because ultimate lineage was not going to go through uh, Ishmael. And so we've seen that again and again and again. This is going to be the child upon which is the child of promise upon which God had provided and, and answered his promise given to him. And now God simply or seemingly wants to take back that promise. But here's what's interesting about Abraham's response. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He did not delay. When you begin to think about obedience and humility and submission, uh, we all want individuals, we all want... Uh, uh, whether you're an employer or you're a, a parent or, or any per- person in authority, you want obedience, but you want immediate obedience, right? You don't want delayed obedience. And what you see here is that a moment that God has spoken to him, uh, it's going to be a, a rather long journey. And so as a result of this, that uh, he waited the first thing in the morning, but early in the morning he's going to saddle his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he began his journey. And so didn't wrestle with God, didn't didn't... Uh, wasn't angry with God. Did we have to see anything stated here? We can read into that. You can speculate on things, but the reality here, it seems he's pretty compliant. The moment that he, uh, sunrise is going to come up uh, early in the morning, he's going to uh, begin to make his journey, make preparations, and, and begins to obey the voice of the Lord. And that speaks volumes to the faith that this man had, that he's not wrestling with God throughout this portion. So then on the third day, so now you've seen it's been at least a three-day journey to be able to get there. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar off. Then Abraham said to his young men, that was the two men that he took with him, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So we definitely see that there is an aspect of worship that has been true of, of uh, Abraham with altar worship, uh, uh, sacrificial worship, uh, in the sense that he would sacrifice an animal, and in that he would be worshiping. You're seeing, once again, an allusion to a burnt offering. We've seen this again and again. The Mosaic Law had not been given, but this has been a precedent, had been established, and had been established early on, probably all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where there was a a substitutionary atonement, where the death of Adam and Eve should have been uh, their physical death there, but God provided clothing for them, uh, clothed them uh, with righteousness that was his own, clothed their nakedness, clothed their shame, and, and uh, through the death of an animal rather than their own death. And so you see uh, hints of substitutionary atonement uh, where God was going to atone for sin through other means. And, of course, that's going to be an allusion to the Christ who is going to die so that we wouldn't have to suffer. He would die in our stead. The righteousness that was Christ would be given to us. And so you see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And, and from that moment, you see again and again and again uh, Cain and Abel to the... the uh, Moses, uh, or not Moses, but Noah on the ark and the clean animals and the animals that were going to be used for burnt offerings. Uh, over and over and over you're seeing these allusions to burnt, burnt offerings that would be related to sin. 
And here you see it as well. The son's going to ask that very question, what about this? And uh, the Lord's going to instruct him to offer him a burnt offering on one of the mountains upon which he's going to instruct him. And so you're saying he's willing to go over there, he's willing to worship, and he says, ultimately, stay here, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So I and the boy are going there, we're going to worship, and I and the boy would be the illusion there, the, the instruction there, are going to come back to you again. So it, what you're beginning to see here is that ultimately... If God does instruct me to kill this child, uh, uh, God is going to resurrect this child and bring this child back to life is what he's instructing there. And you may think that, yeah, you might be reading a little bit into that. Maybe he's just saying that I'm going to go over and worship. Part of that worship is killing, killing my son, and then I'm going to come back to you. But then if you understand what the New Testament is trying to, uh, to, trying to instruct us, even what this passage is trying to instruct us, is exactly what the New Testament readers um, land exactly where they land that he was believing that if god did indeed instruct him to kill the son that god was this was the son of promise and god could resurrect that child from the dead that's the type of faith abram had you think well how do you know that how how can you as a as a preacher be so sure of that well hebrews tells us this hebrews chapter 11 if you understand what hebrews 11 is about it's the passage of faith and then it gives a variety of instances of men and women of faith and what that looked at, how it played out practically in their life. Hebrews 11, verse 17 says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back again. And so uh, the whole point there was that Abraham believed Listen, you promised me this child. You gave this child to me in my old age where my wife was past the age of childbearing. And I believe that if, and you said that ultimately this offspring is going to be named through Isaac, that ultimately then if you've got to do something. If he's dead, you're going to have to bring him back to life. I'm obeyed you. I'm going to obey you now. And then I'm going to trust you that if you're the one who's going to kill him, you gave him to me when basically my wife couldn't bear children, that you can bring him back to me if you ask me to surrender him to you. And so I'm going to trust you on all aspects. And that's exactly what he was communicating to these men. Y'all wait here. We're going to walk over there. We're going to worship, and we're going to come back, and God's going to provide. And then, so if you don't think that's the case, it's exactly what he communicates to his son when his son asks the same question, right? So verse uh, uh, 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac, uh, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they both went. Both of them went together, and Isaac said to his father, uh, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so ultimately, God's the one who provides for offerings. Now, once again, can't, uh, in the context of this, ultimately, it could mean a couple of things. God has, has provided, will provide that offering. Uh, it could simply be, once again, he's going to provide for him through you, and then he's going to raise you from the dead. Or God's going to provide a different means, but regardless, I trust him in this. But God's going to provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Uh, and it's the same, once again, looking at this, and even the context of the whole passage itself, unbelievable allusions to Christ, where it was his only begotten son, right? It was the one who was going to be a substitutionary atonement for us, the final sacrifice, where no more sacrifice, uh, no more need for animal sacrifice because God shed his own blood. The only God's wrath was going to be poured out on his son, and God did provide for himself a lamb, the lamb of God, a burnt offering, an offering for sin, and which was his son, his only son. 
But he tells them, he says, ultimately God's going to provide a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both, went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And once again, I don't know his age, um, but ultimately this child knew animal sacrifices, right? His son's the one who told him, hey, I see the fire, I see the, the wood, I see the knife, but I don't see the offering. And the moment you start getting bound, you're probably at that moment thinking this isn't good, right? So you don't, I don't know what transpired at that moment. Did the dad sit down and have a conversation with his son? Did he prep him? We're not giving any of that, so we could speculate and say all kinds of stuff. And it was such a sweet moment. They both were crying and all this. We don't, I have no idea. The reality in this, though, is the son isn't, uh, best we can tell, attempting to wiggle himself off the altar. Uh, and so uh, he could be, and the dad's holding him there, uh, and he's weeping and crying. Who knows? But the reality in this is that um, he's allowed himself at least to be bound and was bound by his father. Now is laying on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And so but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, a couple things to see there. One was, most obvious, is God's provision, uh, that God provided for him a means of sacrifice. God provided uh, the ram that he had promised. And ultimately, you see a picture again, once again, not the first allusion to this, but an allusion again and again uh, of a substitutionary atonement that the son was now substituted for a ram, for an animal that was going to be uh, uh, sacrificed in his stead, a burnt offering that was going to be for sin. Clearly, that was the whole context of a burnt offerings and burnt offerings for sin offerings. And so, ultimately, sin was being dealt with there, and it was being dealt with not even through the son, the son of promise. And so, once again, you're going to see the allusion to the son of promise, the Messiah, the one who was going to, to crush the serpent's head, even though his heel was going to be bruised. It's going to be a sacrifice for uh, sin and sinners, and so you're seeing all those illusions here. Um, but ultimately, you might begin to ask the question, if God already knows us, and God knows our hearts, then did he not know the faith that Abraham had before this? And why go through all this if God knew he was a man after his, like David, a man after God's own heart, who was willing to, who was already declared righteous because of this? Why go through all the, all, all the aspects of this to bring him there? God knows, God knew and his omniscience, whether he was going to pass the test or not. Then why do it? And God had already had made provision for this, if, if that was the case. And, and so why the process? And part of this is simply to, to demonstrate we don't know we pass the test until we pass the test. God knows, but God ordains tests in our lives to refine us, as James would tell us, right? That we consider it all joy because it's preparing us for even greater things. But ultimately, that we in rejoicing these tests is that it helps us to cling to God more and trust God more. And so it's not something that God needed, even though he says, now I know. It's not like God didn't know he was either going to obey or, or not obey. Uh, God knows all those things. Simply when he, uh, uh, when he was, uh, Abraham was debating with God and trying to get God to uh, spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there was even ten righteous. And so uh, it wasn't like God didn't know the outcome of what was going to take place. And so the purpose behind this, as even James says, is that faith without works is dead. We, Abraham needed to know that he's willing to submit and sacrifice things to God, whether or not God was actually going to take those things from him or not. And that are we willing to trust God with those things that we hold most dear? 
And so for us, that would be one uh, that would be most dear to him, a lineage that was going to be granted to him. And you've got to remember that at this particular time, uh, it was a major deal within this culture to have children and to have individuals um, that were, were of, of your own seed. And this was a command even from God from the very beginning to be fruitful and multiply. And here's a man who's 100 who has one child that's, um, that's not even the child of promise that he tried to work in accordance to his own will and plans that God didn't, re, didn't honor and so now God's finally granted him a child, and now God's asking for this child back. And that's the whole point of this passage, is begin to see that even blessings that God has given you, are you holding on to those blessings too much? Are you holding on too tightly to those blessings? And then what, how are you going to respond if God takes those blessings from you? And that's what we need to see that was a test here. Are we going to rebel against the goodness and the, and, the, and the grace of God? Are we going to rebel against the very word of God in our lives in order to hold on to things that we think are important to us? And so here's the very promise that had been given, and are you going to hold on to that? Are you going to even submit the promise itself to God? And God could take away the promise itself, knowing that he can raise up another son or even raise that son from the dead to trust the Lord and honor the Lord in his word. And that's the test that's going to become that we face all the time. Uh, through this, are we willing to surrender and sacrifice in accordance to the word of God, even when it seems like it's not working, even when it seems like it's a failure, even when it seems like it's the death and death of a dream, right? Uh, I think about Eric Little, for example. You may not be familiar with the story, but he was an Olympic athlete and was going to be running, uh, I think it was the 100 meters or maybe the 200 meters, um, 100 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters. I can't remember now exactly. He never run in one of the other races, but it was scheduled for Sunday. And at that particular time, uh, he said, man, I'm, I don't want to dishonor the Lord by that. I want to um, uh, honor God on Sunday by not uh, resting from my labor. And so somewhat of a Sabbatarian, if you will, even though Sabbath genuinely is on Saturday. Uh, but in the Lord's Day, he wanted to honor the Lord's Day, and it was important to him to do so. And so he has opportunity to run, to represent the country, and to win a gold medal, and he ends up removing himself from running that race on Sunday because it would, he would, in his heart, would sin against his own conscience, and the Bible wouldn't encourage us to do that. And so he felt like it wasn't right to do that, and so therefore he resisted that, that opportunity and so uh, forfeited his opportunity to be able to receive um, praise and honor and glory from others, to be able to represent his country at that particular time, and, to, um, and all the pressures that would come alongside of that, knowing that he was a heavy favorite in that race to be able to win it. But in that... He ends up running another race, ends up winning a gold medal in the race. It wasn't his, his best. It wasn't his, uh, his favored race where he was the favorite in the race to be able to win it, and God honored him in that. But even if God doesn't honor us in this life, are we willing to sacrifice so we wouldn't sin against our conscience and we wouldn't sin against the Lord or feel like we're not obeying what the Word of God tells us, instructs us, uh, even if it costs us things? It costs us our job. It costs us our family. It costs us uh, a variety of other things. i if you remember when we were heading to India on several times, and there was a family that was there was in India that I, we were interacting with, a missionaries that were overseas at that particular time, and uh, they um, wanted to honor the Lord. They wanted to go to India and, and uh, serve the Lord there and to uh, reach the uh, Hindi people. And so in going, um, uh, they were going to be leaving family, and the grandparents got very upset, uh, the parents of this family, of the, of the husband in particular, and uh, they end up suing, uh, taking the, the, his son, the grandparents end up taking their son to court in line of custody for the grandkids because they thought the kids would be in a, in a lifestyle that would be uh, 
beneath them and didn't want them to have to be raised in uh, Indian culture, uh, even though they were desiring to honor the Lord in that. And so there was a major battle that took taken place. And ultimately, the parents won the, the custody case, uh, uh, a custody battle for the children. But in that, their desire to honor the Lord, their desire to submit to the word, to honor what they believe the word of God was, was instructing them to do and, and the desire to be obedient to that and go where they felt like God was, uh, the word of God could instruct them to be able to go. They end up having a custody battle over their own children with his own parents, the grandparents of the children. And so it can cost you. It can cost you relationships. It can cost you a variety of things. And are we willing then to submit and surrender to the Lord, even though we're going to sacrifice whatever that dream may be, right? Whatever that might be. I remember as a kid, I I uh, wanted to be a, a Division One athlete and eventually maybe make it to be a professional athlete. And now that I'm older, I begin to realize I would have to give up that dream because of uh, the time with the faith family. Uh, we meet on the Lord's Day, and to be a professional football player, to be a, a professional basketball player, you're going to miss the time at the gathering that would lead me to be sinning, forsake the assembly, uh, forsaking myself with the assembly. And so as a result of that, I couldn't, I couldn't do that job because of the requirements it would, it would uh, make me. Uh, and missing uh, large segments, if not most every Sunday, uh, with the faith family. And so I wouldn't be able to do that either. And so are you willing to give up a dream? Are you willing to sacrifice the things that you hold dear for the, in accordance to the word of God? And so in this, this is the case, and God honors him there. And so in that, verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is to this day on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord then called to Abraham, and he's now going to then communicate to him a second time from heaven. And he said to him, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as stars of, of heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your, offspring shall, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, it's a, that's a new portion of it. You're seeing even more being granted. The blessings that are going to come are going to be victory over your enemies. And so this is important because why? The audience is the audience that's about to inhabit the land of Canaan or, uh, and, uh, and will continue to reside there in the land of Canaan. And so uh, it's basically making that promise that the descendants will be able to have that. The offspring will now be able to have victory over their enemies. And in your offspring all, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so ultimately it demonstrated his faith in that and through that, God's reaffirming the promises that had been given to him. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Then it seems odd. Then you start moving from Beersheba, and you're like, what in the world does 20 verses 20 through 24 have to do with anything, right? Because then you're going to have this whole situation of his brother and his brother's children, and you're like, I don't, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Um, and so... Uh, how does this fit within all of this aspects of what's taking place? And basically, it's, a, uh, it's an allusion uh, to what's going to be uh, a major portion of Scripture uh, at, subsequent to this. After this, succeeding this, you're going to see where this is, where this is going to come in play. And ultimately, what's going to happen is after the death of Sarah, which we'll talk about next, Isaac needs a wife. And Abraham's going to communicate to uh, his servant, that he wants Isaac to have a wife of his own descendants, not of the people who live there. And so as a result of that, this now makes a lot more sense. And so this is exactly what's taking place. Word arrives at this particular time uh, that's going to give him information, which is why he's going to then allude to the fact that I want him to be married to someone in my family. 
and not the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And that's why this is important in chapters 20 to 24. So it's going to be a little bit of information that's going to be granted to us. It's going to fit into the larger story uh, and that's going to actually be a lot, make a lot more sense when we hit chapter 24, which will be next week. But ultimately, this is how it's unfolding throughout the story itself. So now after these things, it was told to Abraham. So he returns to Beersheba. He's living in Beersheba. And while he's living in Beersheba, through whatever timetable that was, um, that time before Sarah's death, Ultimately, that he's going to be told, it's going to be told to Abraham, word's going to come to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. So ultimately, he's got a brother, as we've studied before, and he's going to have children through Milcah. And it's going to then list the children, us, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kimuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, uh, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And then there's going to be uh, a clause there, and parenthetically speaking, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Now there's your hint right? Ultimately, Isaac's going to grow up. Isaac's going to need a wife, and Isaac's eventually going to marry Rebekah, and that's where our story will pick up in chapter 24. And so this whole little clause here is simply just trying to instruct us that this is where, when he's going to allude in the next chapter, or in a couple chapters, that he wants him to marry someone within his own family. You think, well, where did, this, where did all that information come from? Well, they had already inserted that in chapter 22, verses 20 to 24. These eight Milcah board Nahor, Abraham's brother, moreover, his concubine, whose name is Remah, bore Teba, Geam, Tehash, Tehash, and Mecha. And so that's how it all begins to fit together. So it's a little uh, subcategory that's going to be like, hey, here's information that you're going to need later. It's going to tie all this information together for you. He does have a brother. His brother I did have children, bore eight sons, and of those eight sons, one of those sons, Bethuel, is going to father Rebekah. And that's where his servant, when he returns back home, is going to... Uh, uh, to find Rebecca and is going to bring Rebecca to Isaac, and, and now they're going to bear children, which will be uh, Jacob and Esau, and then ultimately Jacob, will, his name will be changed to Israel, where the children of Israel come from. So big picture story is why you needed that information. Also is important here because it's going, to, it's going to set the stage for the second test. You think, well, I get the first test. It's obvious the Bible even says it's a test. What about the second test? And so God tests Abraham through the sacrifice of his son Isaac, but then God also tests Abraham through the sorrow of the death of his wife, Sarah. The sorrow of the death of his wife, Sarah. And this is where then the next chapter ties in. Now, granted, uh, all this doesn't necessarily say it's a test, but I, I think I can prove to this that, that that's an a- actual depiction of what's actually taking place and begin to communicate why all that's important to the story other than just moving us along that Sarah's going to die and then eventually... Uh, Abraham's going to die, and then Isaac's going to be your new main, new main character, the next patriarch. But I think it even has relationship to testing that takes place here, and I try to point that out to you as we go. So verse 1 of chapter 23. So Sarah lived 127 years, and once again, that was 37 years after the birth of Isaac. So at this point, Isaac's 37. We don't know how, once again, what the timetable was. We know Isaac wasn't 37 um, because he'd already been tested here. Uh, um, and, or he, he wasn't 37 when they were sacrificed there. But ultimately, they, she lived to 127 years, so she's lived 37 years after the birth of Isaac. And these were the years of life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So clearly he loved his wife. Uh, 100 and, uh, uh, they lived, married the whole time, but their wife, he loved his wife and uh, spent much of his time with her. And so he's mourning her. He's weeping for her. And uh, at this particular time, he goes in, he weeps and mourns for her. And then he rises up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. 
Give me property among you for a burying place. I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered, answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of, of to, our tombs. None of us will hold from you this, his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give the, me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which is the east of Mamre, the field that the cave was in, uh, in uh, the field that the cave was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over uh, to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites for all who went in the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried his uh, Sarah, his wife, in the cave of that field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over. Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, uh, look at that and you just go, I don't see any testing in that whatsoever. There's no, the Word of God doesn't communicate any testing. I don't see how there's any testing that was there. Uh, I don't see how this is a test whatsoever. And reality is, the truth is of this is that this is once again a segue, moving the storyline away from Abraham, moving the storyline to Isaac, which will be the main character uh, throughout, and ultimately that's it's a transition, so true. You're going to see the death of, Abra- of Sarah. You're eventually going to see the death of Abraham. But this is important, right? And so you need to just back up and see this from uh, a personal standpoint, and then we're going to be able to look at it from a theological standpoint. So the first, just a personal standpoint, you're, he's already been tested once, right? He's been tested with the sacrifice of his son Isaac. But then you're also being tested here with the, the sorrow of the death of his wife, Sarah, because how many times have you seen individuals, when they have lost a loved one, either reject God or turn their back on God or get very angry at God? Even to the point where you study the book of Job and the, the loss of his, his children, the loss of his property, the loss of his own health, his wife eventually just says, man, just curse God and die. Just get this thing over with. This is ridiculous, right? And all throughout, you've, you and I have heard stories of individuals who do not respond well to death, right? We don't respond well to sacrifices or to surrender, submission to God, submission to the Word of God where it requires us to surrender or sacrifice things, and Abraham passed the test. How will he respond then when the death of someone he's loved and he's lived his life with, right? A a beautiful wife that he's had and had for many years, and they've endured so many things together and was a rock and a pillar in his life. How how do you respond when that happened? Clearly, he loved her. He went in to mourn for her and to weep for her. And so he, he loves her. And so what's the test then? How does this respond? Well, ultimately, at that particular time, if you, you were going to get bitter and angry at God for the death of loved ones, uh, to requiring you to sacrifice things, he passed that test. And so he was willing to surrender, he was willing to sacrifice things for God. 
and he passed that test. But then how do you respond when God takes a life? God's the author of life and, and, and the author of our final days of life and will, will take us in death. He's got our days numbered, the Bible, Bible says. And so as a result of this, how would you respond? Do you just give up? Do you give up on the dream? Are you upset about things? Do you, do you continue to trust the Lord and, and yield to the Lord in those things? <clears throat> so one of the things you could, you could see here is that he has a brother who has family. Does he just pack all this stuff up and go and start living with his family? Man, I'm just going to go back, and I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to trust the Lord, uh, or I'm just going to you know, deny the Lord, and I'm going to go over here and do what he says. And, and uh, man, I'm angry because God took my wife. I mean, he's going to live a lot longer than this um, uh, from this particular time. He's going to be living, uh, he's 137 at this stage, so he's going to live another 38 years after the death of his wife. Remember, he's 10 years older than Sarah, so she's 127. He would have been 137. He lives to 175. And so the last day, she's like, you know what, man? I've been wandering. I've been living uh, by faith all this time. And you know what? I'm going to go back home. I'm going to live there, and we're going to move back to where I have family. And I'm going to find a, an, uh, a son, uh, a wife for my son there, and I'm just going to go live, and I'm going to live as my people have lived, right? But no, it's not what he does. He, he lives in, he's living in the land that God had promised him, and he doesn't leave. He doesn't just uproot and go back. He says, man, I'm going to live right here. I'm going to stay right here. And even more so, he's going to get, dig his, his roots, his uh, heels in, he's going to dig and uh, uh, put down roots right there because he's actually going to buy property. If you remember up to this time, He's nomadic. He's finding land that wasn't that he could live in. He could kind of sojourn there and, and live in there. He's a sojourner. He's a foreigner, as he tells them. And so he's been living on other people's property. Now, it had been promised to him, but he doesn't own any property. And so what you're seeing here is a test of faith where he says, now, I'm not going back home. I'm not going back to the way I used to live. I'm not going back to where my brother lives and where I have family and where I can now provide for my son there and let him marry within the family no, I'm staying here amongst where I'm a foreigner and a sojourner, and I'm going to trust the Lord in it. Even more so, I'm going to ensure that there's now we have a stake of a claim for property because why? I'm burying my wife that I love on this land, and this land needs to belong to me. So the guy's going to tell him, so what happens? So how do we know this? The guy tells him, hey, man, don't, don't, you don't have to pay me for it. I'll just give you the land, and you can bury your dead there, right? Verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will hold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Hey, man, if you just need a place to lay a dead person, we got you, right? You can use a plot of our land to lay the dead person. That's not a big deal. Lay the dead person in one of our, our places. And so Abraham then rose and bowed to the Hittites. He's demonstrating respect to them, honor to them. To the people of the land, he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, for, uh, entreat me, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of uh, Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. He goes, I don't want to just put her there. I want to own it. I want it. And I want this where I'm putting down my roots and I'm saying this is where she's going to lay this is where I'm going to be laid. This is going to be property that I own. And this part of this land is going to be mine. Right? Now, that's where the test comes. Because ultimately, if you're going to get angry with God, you're going to be bitter at God for the death of a family member, and you're going to then leave out, you're going to say, yeah, I'll just bury her here. I'm going back home. Or I'm going to take her home with me. And that been a long journey. She, you know, she would have been smelling really bad by then. So ultimately, hey, I'm going to just soldier here. I'm going to bury her, and I'm moving on somewhere else. And he says, nope. I'm planting my roots here. I'm staying here, and this is going to be where I desire to be. 
Interesting enough, this is where he first worshipped the Lord and his first sacrifice was, was there at Hebron uh, at the, the, the uh, trees of Mamre, if you remember back. And so this is where it began, and this is where, where God spoke to him, and he built an altar there. And so this is where he's coming back, and he's saying, I want to, this is where God spoke. This is where I want to well, I I die, and so ultimately I'm going to stay here. I'm going to trust the Lord in that. And so rather than getting bitter at God for taking his wife, for being angry at things that didn't go the way that he wanted him to go, wanted to, you know, he's going to live, like I said, another 38 years. I'm only 40, so I'm thinking, man, my entire life, he's going to live it again uh, for those next 38 years of his life. Uh, and he's going to endure that entire time apart from his bride and all the time that they had spent together, all that they had seen that God, God do in their midst. Uh, and the, line, the woman that, that God granted a child in her old age, uh, all the wonderful memories they had. He could have gotten really bitter, really angry, but no, he, he says, man, no, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to pay full price for that field. And so as the, then the Ephron was sitting among them, he's going to challenge that. And it says, no, my Lord, in verse 11, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it, and the sign of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. And then Abraham's going to then challenge that again and says, listen, if you're going to, then accept my payment for this, because I want everyone to know that this field belongs to me. This is now my property. This isn't your property that you allow me to, just to kind of squat on for a minute and to live here, and I'm a sojourner, and I'm a foreigner. No, I'm now going to be a resident. I'm living here. I'm going to reside here. And this is the land that's going to be mine. And that's exactly what happens. And then ultimately in verse 20, the field that and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a, bury, property for a burying place by the Hittites. And, Hittites. and so now um, Abraham is going to own that land. And of course, now once again, transition. Now that he owns land and that land's now then going to be his and it's going to be the type of land that's going to be where not just him, but then his children, the descendants, all the patriarchs will be, not all, but most of the patriarchs will be buried there and will reside there. And so ultimately, this was the first stake of the claim of the land that God had promised him. And so the promise that had been given, that this land was going to be yours, you're going to possess it, now he's going to have ownership, right? And that's going to now solidify that at least a small portion of that is his. And that's exactly what Hebrews was telling us, right? Ultimately, he's trusting the Lord in this. He's believing God's promises. But ultimately, many of those guys didn't receive all the full promise, right? The promise of the Messiah that was going to crush the serpent's head. They still don't see that. The promise that they're going to have victory over all their enemies. They're not going to see that. The promise that ultimately there's going to be um, a multitude of descendants that you couldn't even number as the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore, the dust of the earth. All these promises, you're saying, man, I don't, I don't see that. Kings are coming from this. You're not going to see that. And so ultimately, they're receiving aspects of the promise the greater promise is still coming, but they've not received it all. And the truth for the matter is that that's the same thing God communicates to us today. We get aspects of the promise. God grants us his Holy Spirit. He grants us forgiveness. We look back on the finished work of the Messiah, and we know that there's a, a greater reward coming, that there's an inheritance. We have earnest money. The Spirit of God resides us. It's a seal, a guarantee of the inheritance. But we don't have the inheritance. We, too, like Abraham, are sojourners and foreigners in this world that our citizenship is in heaven and not here. And so very similar to this whole pattern is what God is communicating to us even today as New Testament believers. Yes, it's not about a land and a lineage in that way, uh, but ultimately it's about a greater land, a land in heaven, a lineage that we're of the kingdom of God. We're still children. We are children of God if we've been born again and placed our faith and trust in Jesus. And ultimately there's a greater inheritance that's there that awaits us. But we don't have the fullness of all those promises yet. Because there are promises that God has intended for us to have. And so the question for us is the same thing that we saw happen to Abraham. And that is, 
Will we submit to the word of God and surrender to the word of God, even if it requires us to sacrifice the things that are the most dear to us? Children, family, dreams, occupation, jobs, that man, I'm, in order to honor the word of God, then I got to surrender and submit this to him, even if it means I'm going to lose something I hold most dear. Are we willing to pass that test? And are we willing then to pass the second test? And that when we go through major tragedies in our lives, the death of a loved one, the death of a child, that are we willing to trust the Lord and submit to him with joy, even in the midst of sorrow, right? Rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, how do you tie that with weep with those who are weeping and rejoice with those who rejoice? Ultimately, there is a sorrow that's legitimate and it's, it's sound, but it's not without hope. We still can have joy intermingled in the midst of deep, deep sorrow because why we cling to the promises of God. And so you and I both know individuals probably very close uh, within, uh, within our, uh, the time of our faith family, within our own immediate family, that have responded poorly to both of these, the sacrifice of things that were, that were taken from them and the, the sorrow of individuals whose lives were taken from them. And they can't recover. They don't recover. And they become bitter, they become angry, they're resentful, right? And they claim to be believers, but yet, man, they, they do not vindicate the name and the, and the word of God. They villainize and they assassinate God's character and his holiness because of their loss. And so clearly you see that they didn't, they don't, they're not responding the way this man of faith did in the scriptures, right? Where he, rather than digging deeper into the will and word of God uh, by planting roots there in the land of promise, where he was a soldier and a foreigner. He could have gone back home, upon which he had word that there was, the family was increasing and that there was blessings there and that there, there was individuals that this child could be able to marry and he could move back there just as easily. But no, he plants himself there right in the context of what the word of God had instructed him to do. And so for you, for I, part of this is think, you may think, well, God hasn't really asked me to sacrifice much. Well, the question then may be, are we obeying him much? Are we, we might need to get in the word of God and see, is God asking us to do things that, that we are not currently doing where it might actually require us to sacrifice, that we'd be more bold in our faith, and as a result of that, we could lose a job, or we could forfeit um, finances, or we could forfeit opportunities that would come our way as a result of that and really trust the Lord in that. Uh, might be opportunities where you begin to see, man, if I just remain quiet, and ultimately, I, I'll remain unscathed to this situation. But the reality is, are we going to honor the Lord? And are we going to be like David, who was willing for the, our God to be um, uh, uh, villainized and our God to be made fun of uh, by public opinion like it was with David when he faced Goliath? The rage that came for David was a desire for the righteous character of God and ultimately not him, uh, an uncircumcised Philistine making fun of his God. It wasn't that... He was taking personal offense at it. His God was being uh, taunted and rejected. And so as a result of that, he's going to stand for the, the, the great and good and glorious character of God. And so are we willing to do that? Are we willing to sacrifice things for that? And number two, are we willing then to stand uh, upon the promises and, and have joy in the midst of sorrow when we experience death in our own lives? And that too is something that you think, well, I'm not experienced that. Well, I'm going to begin to prepare yourself now to know what the word of God says and how you should be thinking about God. So when that time comes, have conversations about that. Prepare your, your children, prepare your spouse for that time so that they know how to respond. Because if not, then they may not respond in accordance. You prepare them for so many other things. You prepare them financially. You prepare them economically. You prepare them with wisdom. You prepare them with, uh, with skills and with instruction. 
Are you preparing them for death? Twofold. One, salvation and their need for it, right? Upon when death happens, they'll either be eternally um, with God forever in heaven or eternally separated from God in hell. And are you preparing them to know how to respond to that? As weird and as creepy as it is, I've had, you know, you might think it's weird or uh, creepy, but as, as unusual as that conversation may be, I've sat down with my wife in front of the children and communicated to them, if anything ever were to happen to me, I give my blessing to my wife that she could remarry and should remarry, and I don't feel at that particular time um, that I'm going to be slighted and that my being replaced as the kid's father, but I want them to know that my wife may need help within the context of the house and that she may find someone that she can love, and as a result of that, would, I'm giving my blessing while I'm alive. If you were to ask, if there ever be a question, you're hearing me say, Dad is okay with Mom remarrying, and I'm not being slighted. Children, do not be bitter that Mom remarries. Trust the Lord. Trust His plan. God has ordained this to happen, and so rest in that. The man's a godly man, loves the Lord, loves them as would be his own children, then yield to that, even though, yes, he's not your biological father, but you rest in the fact that God is good. Why would I want to have that conversation? Because you can speculate and be like, Dad wouldn't want this and this and that. Well, I want them to hear before I die, if I were to die, and God could take me at any moment, I want them to be prepared for death and how to operate in the context of sorrow. And so there's important things to discuss, right? And so in this, there's ways that we can pass tests that God grants us, that we can be tempted by Satan in the midst of those tests. It's the same word in the Greek, test and tempting, uh, that where God intends it to be a test, that Satan can then take that test upon which we could pass successfully and turn it into an opportunity to be enticed to sin in the same test, right? God's not testing us. He's not tempted by sin or tempts anyone to sin, James says. So we know God's not tempting us, but in the context of the test, Satan can tempt us, right? So... Example, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness for a test for 40 days and 40 nights. And in the context of the test, Satan enters in and now tempts him in the very context of the test that God had given him. So the angel of the Lord is not leading him there to tempt him to sin because they wouldn't do that, right? It's out of the character of nature of God, and God would be a liar. He says, I can't be tempted, and I can't tempt anyone to sin. But in the context of the test, Satan is there to then lead us to sin tempt us. And so the reality in this is that in the context of your sacrifices of the dear things you hold most dear and the context of the sorrow that you'll experience in this life, which God promised us, you're going to be having to walk through those tests. And in the context of those tests, Satan is there to tempt us to sin against God, to assassinate God's character, to lead us to doubt God and that doubt, to distrust God and that distrust, to disobey God. And it's that time we need to know what the Word of God says. And while you're strong, while you're, you're thinking properly, to begin preparing yourself for those times of testing. When, what could God be asking us to sacrifice, to surrender? And not for the sake of becoming more holy, right, in the sense of like, well, I'm going to sacrifice this stuff because I'll prove my, my diligence to God. No, by simple obedience to the Word of God. Abraham didn't come up with the test. God gave the test. And so what might we need to sacrifice to obey the word of God that he's already given us? That's what we would do, right? God's asked us to be faithful disciple makers. What might we need to give up because we're not doing a very good job at disciple making? 
God's asked us to be witnesses to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, right? To all the nations. So how might we need to change things because we're not doing that? And we might have to sacrifice things that we really like or we're really good at or we, we really uh, are, uh, God's blessed us in and surrender that and surrender a lifestyle that we have because of the fact we need to obey the Lord. And so that could be one of the areas of testing. Or, once again, sorrow, and God were to take someone that's close to us. And so, here's all I know. The Word of God and the providence of God are such that any one of us could be tempted this week in either of these two areas. And you're under the hearing of the Word of the Lord for a reason. And so, I encourage you to take it seriously. Not that I'm... I know anything. I'm not a prophet predicting anything's going to happen. I'm, the reality is this, though. We now are being held accountable to what we've been granted today. And so we should take it seriously. Submission to the Word of God will encourage us to sacrifice things for His glory and good and our own obedience. And two, um, there will be tests of sorrow that each one of us will face at some point in time. And have we prepared ourselves? And then if we haven't, are we willing to trust the Lord in the context of that? that we remain committed to the will and the word of God, just like Abraham did. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful for your word and how it grants us instruction in very pertinent and practical and personal ways. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to identify areas where we're not being obedient to you and maybe the reason we're not being obedient is because it would require great sacrifice, great surrender of things that we love and things that are good. They're not sinful. Things that we like and things that we find joy in. But Lord, if we're not being obedient and this is a direct deterrent from that obedience, I pray that, Lord, we would give it up quickly, joyfully, sacrificially, cheerfully, Lord, I pray in the area of sorrow, and Lord, we don't control many of these, and many times it comes out of this left field. We just don't see it coming. Individuals diagnosed with cancer, car accident, paralysis, stage four cancer and short-lived, a bee sting that reveals ALS and much time of suffering, brain cancer. These are things that we as a faith family have experienced. Loved ones that we've watched suffer as a result of those who were taken too quickly. A son who commits suicide. Lord, we, we know these stories and Lord, we, we pray that you would help us trust you when that day of visitation happens to us, not just to those that are around us, that we would vindicate your character and that your grace would be exhibited in our lives through faith. And Lord, we know that it's not ourselves, it's a gift from you. And so we know we must rely upon you, we must submit to you, we must yield to you. And so I pray now in advance of those days of testing, that you prepare our hearts and that you position us to be more prepared 
as a result of your great good kindness, your mercy and grace by allowing us to study even this passage today. Realize how important Old Testament passages are and how it relates to the New Testament and that you're a God who raising someone from the dead is not difficult for you, but you may not do that. And so I pray that you would help us to trust you whether or not the miracle ever comes. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.